My name is Greg Juckett. I'm from West Virginia University. I'm a family physician who's uh, uh, been working in travel medicine for most of my career. I direct the travel clinic at West Virginia University, and um, part of my practice is uh, preparing uh, long-term overseas workers uh, for uh, activities abroad, whether it's missions or business. And the long-term traveler has different needs than the short-term vacation uh, or short-term mission traveler. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, a very different approach, I think, uh, if you're going to make a commitment to travel abroad for a year or more. Uh, of course, the, uh, the myth of the long-term traveler, you know, striding across the globe, uh, conquering the nations for Christ, is uh, sometimes very different from the reality which is pictured uh, below you know, of an exhausted man hugging his uh, luggage. And I usually identify more with the guy on the bottom. Uh, and you'll have uh, both moments, I think, when you travel overseas. Uh, but just be aware that there are uh, high points and low points in any uh, adventure in life. Uh, we can, at least we can try to, to get better... Yeah, and we, yeah. This is is this good for everybody? All right, thank you. Oh, I've got another side. <laughs> All right. Well, this diagram here shows uh, Theseus lopping the legs off uh, Procrustes, who was uh, an innkeeper who uh, had a one-sized bed that was to fit all of his uh, travelers. And according to ancient mythology, if you had the misfortune of stopping at Procrustes Inn, he would force you into the bed, and if you were too short for it, he would put you on a rack and stretch you until you fit. And if you were too long, he would chop your legs off so you would fit. And uh, his reign of terror continued until Theseus came and uh, uh, gave him a taste of his own medicine by cutting him down to size, which is depicted here on this uh, Greek urn. Too often we practice uh, a type of travel medicine called the Procrustean bed approach, where one size fits all, even if it does violence uh, to the traveler. And, of course, this has entered the lexicon as a metaphor for forcing everybody to do the same thing when their needs are actually very different from each other. And uh, so I'm going to urge you to consider uh, a traveler's itinerary and their needs and then adapt what you know is best for risk reduction to those particular needs and not give everybody the same exact advice. But we're going to talk a little bit about traveler's diarrhea. We're going to talk about malaria prevention if you're going into a malarious area, and we're talking about some travel vaccinations, focusing on what long-term expatriates might need, and a little bit about accident prevention and uh, culture shock, which are big issues for the long-term traveler, and probably the major reason for the long-term traveler going home ahead of the scheduled time 
is not illness, but is a psychiatric problem in a family member. So your son or daughter develops a problem with major league culture shock or becomes depressed. And, and then you, the, the whole uh, family has to go home to deal with that needs of, of the vulnerable family member. It's often the wife uh, or the spouse of the long-term worker who may have less to occupy their time uh, and go into uh, culture shock. Now, the, the long-term traveler, in my experience, is a breed apart, okay? Uh, just to gauge the audience, how many of you have been long-term expatriates overseas? Okay, I just want to make sure I don't offend too many people here because these are unusual, often eccentric people who have tremendous skills uh, and uh, they may be cautious on arrival in the country, but it doesn't take long before their risk tolerance increases and they, as I say, go native. Uh, they are prone to adventurous eating. They start out following the rules for malaria, but how many of you have seen a long-term expat who's still taking their malaria prophylaxis uh, the way they should? It doesn't happen very often. They usually end up abandoning it and sometimes getting malaria over and over again. And in my experience, they often ignore needed vaccinations unless it's mandated by their mission uh, organization. There's also the risk of accidental death in the long-term traveler. And the biggest killer of missionaries is not what it was in the 19th century, which was diseases like malaria and typhoid. Adoniram Judson lost his first family to tropical disease when he was in Burma, and then he lost uh, much of his second family uh, to tropical diseases as well. Fortunately, we don't live in that sort of world anymore, we, uh, but we do have accidents. And what kills missionaries overseas is motor vehicle accidents, such as uh, riding your motorbike uh, to work, which is often the most practical and least expensive solution, but also by far the most dangerous. Um, and so if you want to really reduce your risk of getting killed while living abroad, don't ride motorbikes. Okay. As a matter of fact, in Siem Reap, Cambodia, uh, they've made it illegal now to rent motorcycles to foreigners. And the reason is that so many were being killed on the very first day because they weren't familiar with the traffic pat patterns and the, the chaos that reigns on Southeast Asian roads. So somebody from the UK or the US would rent a motorbike go out and they would have a lifespan of one to two hours on those highways. And often injuries that would be survivable in the United States are fatal overseas because in that golden hour or so that you have to get to emergency care, you, you don't get the care that you need. So that's a somewhat dismal beginning here. <laughs> the... Uh, let me tell you that many people have wonderful careers overseas and stay perfectly healthy. But uh, the, uh, we do need to make sure that the overseas uh, worker is going to be properly motivated to take care of themselves. In many respects, the long-term expat is like the VFR traveler, which we call visiting friends and relatives 
And travel medicine docs actually dread this VFR traveler uh, even more than the long-term expat because they are notoriously resistant to seeking care. And most of the cases of malaria I see at West Virginia University are returning VFRs or long-term expats who either never took their malaria pills as directed or uh, gave up on taking them and didn't finish them properly. So uh, this uh, says, are you pretty good with your fists? Okay. And uh, some of you may be going to destinations that may have some, some uh, personal risk involved, uh, whether it's uh, usually it's robbery or crime or terrorism. My wife grew up on the mission field on the border between uh, Thailand and Burma. And the big risk there was robbery, and, and uh, it was warlord territory at the time she was growing up in the Golden Triangle, and it was fairly common for missionaries just to be uh, killed uh, in robbery attempts uh, because they were outside of the, the area where uh, Thai law really applied. But although we, are, we spend a lot of time worrying about things like terrorism and robbery today, uh, most of the mortality that occurs in the younger traveler is, again, motor vehicle accidents. And for travelers my age, the older traveler, it is death secondary to pre-existing conditions. Okay? So, you know, you have your heart attack in Asia instead of in, in America, but it was a heart attack that was probably going to, to happen. Okay? How many of you are familiar with the yellow book put out by the Centers for Disease Control? I see a lot of hands going up, and that's great. This is the standard of care for overseas travel in the United States, and we get most of our recommendations uh, from that. Uh, the 2014 edition, uh, like the edition before, it has many great improvements. They have uh, uh, a section on post-travel consultation for the ill-returning traveler, and I find those very interesting consultations. We, uh, we do a lot of risk uh, management, which is what travel medicine is. Uh, there is a, a special section on select destinations for, you know, if you want to climb Kilimanjaro or visit Angkor Wat, a, a lot of travel in the world and a lot of the side trips that you might be taking, even as a long-termer, are described there along with the risks attendant to those particular endeavors. Uh, and, of course, we have special populations. What about if you're traveling with small children, okay? Or if you decide to become pregnant and deliver a child overseas? Um, we need to address those issues. Well, one of the first things, of course, that we confront when we send somebody abroad is traveler's diarrhea, which is uh, described as three or more Unformed stools, of course, diarrhea within a 24-hour period with at least one of the following, fever, nausea, vomiting, cramps, or even bloody stools. And traveler's diarrhea is not just a loose stool. It's a loose stool with cramping or feeling ill, basically, is the point I'm trying to make. About half of travelers going from a developed country to a less developed country will get this, usually within the first two weeks of the travel. But the good news for the long-term expat is that uh, while, travel while traveler's diarrhea may be part of the adventure uh, in a real sense, uh, 
you quickly get over it, and most people uh, here develop a native's resistance to the local microbes, you know, within a few months of, of travel. This uh, gets people a little bit cocky, okay? So then they start to take more and more risks with the, the local uh, food, and sometimes they get uh, uh, persisting parasitic infections due to high-risk exposures, okay? You might go out to a remote village and drink some water that you really shouldn't drink, even though you have adapted somewhat uh, uh, to the flora of the country. And sometimes what you eat isn't what you think you, you're eating, okay? Uh, you know, uh, and so, of course, we need to know what's safe and unsafe, and uh, I guess the Peace Corps has summarized that in their mantra, which is boil it, cook it, peel it, or forget it. Uh, and the Peace Corps greeting is, you know, how are your bowels doing today? Because people's ups and downs and the way they feel often relates to their intestinal health if you're in a remote enough area. But we want you to avoid street vendor fare. Uh, you realize, of course, that street vendors often... Um, do not sell everything that they have immediately, and they hold the food overnight for leftovers. Bacteria produce toxins if it's not properly refrigerated, and the next morning when they um, reheat that, uh, that food, the heat-stable toxin remains in the food, even though the bacteria are killed. And this causes uh, vomiting uh, with uh, profound food poisoning. And trust me, I have suffered the consequences of eating off the street. It tasted delicious at the time. And then I'd spend the ensuing 24 hours, you know, hugging the toilet, basically uh, paying my dues for that. And I don't care how long you traveled overseas, how well adapted you are to the native flora. If you get exposed to these toxins, you will be sick. Uh, you know, salads are high risk. Fruits that you can't peel, uh, uh, uncooked vegetables, T drinking from the tap is something you don't do in Africa, even if you've lived there for many years, okay? And, uh, and sometimes things can trip you up that you don't expect, like the guacamole that they put out on the table that looks so delicious is often an ideal culture media for the, you know, the bacteria that flies carry to it, and it, it just sits there on that table in the heat day in and day out and, and goes bad. So think before you eat. Of course, hot cooked food is usually quite safe. And so uh, these are some foods that are probably not safe. The salad, uh, anything that has raw greens in it, the guacamole above, You'll notice that uh, the Coca-Cola, which is normally pretty safe, has ice in it, okay? Ice will trip you off, up more often than not because it has uh, the same bacteria that the tap water has, unless it's made from filtered or clean water, okay? So our strategy with traveler's diarrhea is basically if you get cramping with sudden onset of diarrhea and you feel physically sick, you take a single dose of an antibiotic, and we usually use a quinolone like ciprofloxacin 
um, if uh, you are in South America or Africa uh, or China, if you're in South Asia or Southeast Asia, drug uh, campo- or, or quinolone-resistant campylobacter is a major cause of traveler's diarrhea there. And we recommend that you use azithromycin, a single dose of azithromycin for traveler's diarrhea acquired in South Asia, okay? And uh, rifaximine is a non-absorbable antibiotic, a very expensive one that can be used if, if you have um, medical contraindications to the others or on a, on a blood thinner that interacts with antibiotics. But instead of taking a course of antibiotics, which can actually be harmful, usually a single dose will suffice in aborting the traveler's diarrhea and getting you better immediately. So instead of being sick for two or three days while the illness runs its course, you are improved in two or three hours and are able to keep going. And it can really make a big difference with empiric self-treatment of traveler's diarrhea. And quinolones like ciprofloxacin will treat most of the known pathogens, including typhoid uh, fever. Now, the long-term expat does develop a certain resistance to the common sources of, of traveler's diarrhea, the bacterial sources, but not to the parasitic sources. So you might find that with your uh, native eating habits and your desire to uh, uh, try the salad, you pick up Giardia, which is manifested as a gassy diarrhea with this rotten egg, uh, hydrogen sulfide smell. In, in Mexico, they also call it the purple burp because you're also belching up this hydrogen sulfide and you can clear a room after uh, your eruption, uh, and it can be diagnosed that way, actually. Amoebic colitis. Uh, and Clostridium difficile or C. diff infection, especially if you take too many antibiotics, can all cause persistent diarrheas. And our plan B for traveler's diarrhea, if the antibiotic does not work after two doses, is to switch to uh, a drug like tinidazole or metronidazole. Tinidazole is what I recommend overseas because a single one gram, uh, I'm sorry, two gram dose of four or 500 milligram tablets will wipe out uh, uh, most of these infections. Now, we all think of salads causing traveler's diarrhea, but there are worst case scenarios if you insist on eating salads uh, living overseas. In Southeast Asia, there have been cases of eosinophilic meningitis from the uh, rat lungworm. I, I'm interested in teaching parasitology, and uh, one of the uh, worst things you can get from a salad is this condition. And you know how it spread? Snails. Eating raw snails is the classic way because they uh, carry the larval parasite, although one phase is in the rat. But even the slime that snails leave as they crawl over the greens can leave the parasite behind. So if you eat raw lettuce with snail slime on it in the wrong place, you can, you can actually get a meningitis uh, that can be life-threatening. And the other worst-case scenario, this doesn't happen very often, but if they fertilize your, uh, their fields 
with uh, pig feces, and those pigs have tapeworms, pork tapeworm, then you could get neurocystocercosis by ingesting pork tapeworm eggs. And there are a number of cases of long-term people coming back with seizure disorders who have cysts in their, their brain from ingesting uh, uh, salads that have been contaminated with pig feces, basically. Uh, I don't want you to scare you so that you won't go on the field. <laughs> but uh, these are some of the things that we have, have seen. Food poisoning. Um, since it's Halloween, I included our pumpkin here. Um, the uh, food poisoning is uh, another common problem. And the vomiting uh, that you get with this is usually not responsive to antibiotics because it's a preformed toxin. It occurs a lot faster than traveler's diarrhea. And one of the things that can be very helpful is a Dancitron, perhaps better known as Zofran, uh, originally used as a uh, chemotherapy nausea drug, but is wonderful for quick uh, treatment once you get into the dry heave stage and you've emptied your stomach. You can suck on one of these disintegrating tablets, and it often you know, calms the, uh, the suffering. They say, first you're afraid you're going to die, and then you're afraid that you might not. <laughs> and, of course, wash your hands. The little three-ounce antibacterial hand gel can be very helpful if you carry that around. And if you're in Asia or Africa, always carry a little Kleenex packet because usually toilet paper is not available at a lot of the public restrooms. So we're going to switch over now to malaria prevention. The risk is greatest in Africa, especially West Africa, and in parts of uh, Oceania like the Solomon Islands or Papua New Guinea. But you really should research where malaria is in the, your destination and take it seriously. This is the one exception. You know, I told you that we usually don't die of tropical disease like we, do in, uh, like we did in the 19th century. But malaria is still a killer. And as a um, traveler from North America, you are as vulnerable as a newborn African infant. You have no innate resistance to the malaria parasite. And uh, if you are infected with falciparum malaria, uh, it could rapidly develop into cerebral uh, malaria or pulmonary edema and uh, be, be fatal. Uh, so we, we take this very seriously. This still can be a fatal illness. Now, there are lots of problems in long-term expats who are traveling abroad. First of all, they often do not take the proper chemoprophylaxis of the drugs. We don't have a, a, an effective vaccine for travelers yet that's commercially available. There are vaccines that have been developed, you know, for infants being born that give them some temporary protection. Uh, but even those are not in widespread use. Uh, but travelers are often notorious at not finishing or taking their medications uh, properly. And they're both real and perceived side effects of these drugs that we may want to cover. So I always try to look at where they're going to be visiting and, try, and where they're going to be staying at night. Because remember, the Anopheles mosquito, the vector of malaria, feeds only after dusk. So if you're in an air-conditioned hotel, you know, your risk is very different than if you're camping out 
in a thatched hut in a, in a village in Papua New Guinea. Uh, and the benefits, of course, should outweigh the, the risk of taking the, the pills. Don't forget to use a bed net and don't forget to use insect repellents. These are often your first line of defense against malaria. And, of course, the malaria uh, prophylaxis has to be both affordable and tolerable to the patient if you expect them to continue to use it. Um, and early diagnosis and treatment of febrile illnesses that could be malaria is critical and perhaps life-saving. This map shows some of the malarious areas of the world. It's primarily the Amazon and patches in Central America right now and also Africa and South Asia. Malaria is changing a lot in the Americas. This is a earlier, we have malaria maps that we generate for travelers. Uh, uh, these maps came out of the Travax um, ma uh, travel system. But you'll see that northern Costa Rica had, had malaria. This is the map from a few years ago on the left. And now there was essentially no malaria. Uh, risk in Costa Rica, and it's not necessary to prescribe anti-malarials for this country now. So things change over time. If you go to India, the red areas are areas that uh, are con currently considered malaria risk. You'll notice that North India has a lot more malaria than South India. Most of the travelers to South India do not get malaria prophylaxis anymore from me, Okay. Uh, in North India, when are you going? Because malaria is a largely a seasonal disease there. It peaks during and shortly after the monsoon season in the summer when all the, the rains uh, cause mosquitoes to breed. And so if you're going to India in July, August, September, you're going during the peak mosquito activity and you're likely to be exposed to diseases like malaria and dengue fever at that time of year. If you go in February or, or January, February, uh, uh, during the winter, there's very few mosquitoes, and chances are you won't need to take malaria prophylaxis even in the, the red area because the incidence would be very low. So if you were a traveler in India, I would put you on prophylaxis during the, the, the high-risk portion of the year but you wouldn't necessarily have to continue it throughout. This is an example of tailoring the recommendations to the patient instead of doing what a lot of travel medicine doctors do in the United States, which is if you're going to India, you're going to take malaria pills. doesn't matter where you're going. That's the Procrustean bed approach. So you have the expense and the hassle of malaria pills, but really you don't need them if you're going to Tamil Nadu you know, in, the, in the south. Uh, about insect repellents, I really recommend, I don't know how many of you are afraid of DEET containing repellents, but you really don't need to be if you use a preparation that is under 50% DEET, uh, and you can use this uh, pretty regularly and safely. Uh, obviously, you don't want to ingest it or put it on your children's fingers if they're sticking their fingers in their mouth, but... Uh, but 35% or anything between 20 to 50% DEET is probably safe and effective. It's probably the longest lasting insect repellent we have. And uh, we encourage you to wear this, especially when you're going out in the evening in a malarious area, on your 
your exposed skin. Now, uh, there's a preparation. I don't have any stock in this company, but there's a preparation called Ultrathon, which is 35% sustained release heat that the U.S. military uses that lasts for a full 12 hours. It's probably the longest-lasting insect repellent that we, uh, we know of. So some people say, well, I bought the 100% stuff. I want to be doubly sure uh, that I don't get uh, malaria. And 100% DEET will protect you against malaria, certainly, but the benefits start to plateau after 50%, and when you use a concentration greater than that, you just increase your skin absorption. Okay. If you're worried about the disease dengue or breakbone fever, I would uh, also use it in the morning because dengue mosquitoes feed during the day and put it on top of your sunscreen. And that further reduces the risk of uh, absorption. For your clothing, if you're going to go out in the bush, I recommend spraying your clothing with permethrin spray. Just put your clothes out in the yard, spray it front and back, and that keeps ticks and vermin out of your, your clothes. Uh, and uh, uh, other people tell me, well, I'm going to take thiamine pills or use an ultrasound device um, or one of those wristbands. The wristbands that are impregnated with insect repellent seem to protect that arm pretty well. But if your other arm is bitten, you still get malaria. Okay? And, uh, and there's even, much to my horror, when I was in uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, we found families giving homeopathic malaria prophylaxis to their kids. And there was this DMAL 200, which was manufactured by Blue Turtle Pharmaceuticals, which was basically, uh, you know, just a, a diluted uh, homeopathic remedy that had no medical uh, evidence for effectiveness. And they were in a highly high-risk area for malaria and using a homeopathic unproven treatment. Uh, my purpose is not to slam homeopathy, uh, but my theory is that the more serious the potential condition is, the more our standards for medical evidence, the higher our standards for medical evidence should be in terms of protecting our, our families. So, of course, bring the right insect repellent. Here, uh, McAllister brought on instead of off. And they're suffering the consequences. You know, don't rely on skin so soft, you know, for your, your malaria protection because it won't work for very long, okay? I have some funny stories about that. Uh, so what if you are bitten by a mosquito that carries malaria? It takes about at least a week of incubation before the malaria parasite uh, multiplies itself in your liver and then infects your blood. So... Uh, you know, you have to be in a malarious area for longer than a week, usually, to actually come down with the disease. And there are several drugs that protect you against it. Uh, chloroquine was the old standby. It was taken weekly, uh, and it was a wonderful drug for malaria, both for prevention and for treatment. It was safe during pregnancy, um, uh, apart from very bitter and potentially toxic uh, to, to kids in overdose, it was a wonderful drug. The problem with chloroquine, of course, is as we all know, the malaria parasite has evolved resistance to it. And for all practical purposes, chloroquine is only effective now in Haiti and in Central America, where the falciparum malaria still has not become resistant to it. 
Outside of uh, the Dominican or the island of Hispaniola, uh, which is Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and Central American malarious areas, we, we usually don't use chloroquine now. Methylquid is the drug that is, uh, was supplanted chloroquine. Uh, the brand name is Larium. It's also weekly, uh, chemically somewhat similar, but it has a side effect that has made it rather notorious. Can any of you tell me what the uh, what uh, methylquid or larium is known for? What? Vivid dreams, uh, suicide. Well, suicide is way down on the list, but certainly it can make you crazy. Okay, and uh, that's what people are afraid of. I'm going to address that issue. I think most people just get vivid dreams, um, but if you have any history of uh, depression, anxiety. Um, my personal theory about mefloquine is however high-strung you are, taking mefloquine for prophylaxis will ratchet you up one notch on that uh, scale. And for some of us, that's not a very good thing to happen. Okay? And, uh, and uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that. But mefloquine, with that side effect aside, is probably the most convenient option for the long-term traveler because it can be taken on a weekly basis and it's affordable. Um, doxycycline can be taken daily. Uh, it can be rough on the stomach and give you a lot of heartburn and some sun sensitivity. For some people, it works wonderfully, and it's safe to use long-term, even for years, uh, without uh, bad consequences. Our most popular anti-malarial for the short-term traveler is malarone, uh, uh, also known as atovaquone and proguanol. Atovaquone is a drug that can be used for pneumocystis carinii, pneumonia if you're allergic to sulfa. Um, uh, proguanol is an old British anti-malarial. In combination, uh, these, this seems to be a very effective, albeit very expensive, anti-malarial pill. Now, now malarone went generic a year ago, but the cost has not dropped substantially yet, and it still costs close to $5 per pill, and it's taken daily. Any of you see a problem there with the long-term expat? Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't afford it unless you have uh, – I mean, I've had a few long-term travelers uh, who had seizures where the alternatives were uh, – inappropriate uh, because chloroquine and methylquine can lower your seizure threshold and doxycycline interferes with quite a few different seizure medications. So if you have epilepsy, malarone is your best bet. And we, we do have long-term travelers who are on it because they can't take the other options. But in general, it's, it's too expensive for trips longer than a month. Uh, and primaquine we use for terminal prophylaxis. Some people use it outside of Africa for long-term uh, prophylaxis in malaria. Uh, but we're not going to get into that today. Now, when to use which drug, okay? And here I, I want to tell you that mefloquine is uh, uh, often our long, best long-term option. It's weekly. It's safe in pregnancy. But the downside is the initial risk of some neuropsych side effects. And let me tell you, initial is a key word here. 
because I've found that if you can take mefloquine for about a month and you do well with it, you're likely to do well with it ever after. You're what I call mefloquine proven. So I know that I can take mefloquine and it doesn't bother me that much. Yes, I have some bizarre dreams. They're not nightmares, but they're very realistic. But it doesn't seem to affect me too much. And so for, with a long-term traveler, I often will start them, if they've not taken mefloquine before, and they're going to Africa, I'll give them a trial of mefloquine. We start it you know, a month in advance. We give them uh, two to four weeks of weekly mefloquine, and we just see how they do with it. If they start to have problems, you know, we, we take them off of it and try something, something else. If they do well during that trial, chances are they're going to do fine afterwards. Yes? What do you recommend for children long term? Uh, we use a, a dose-appropriate mefloquine uh, long term for children, too. And for both malarone and mefloquine and chloroquine, we have, by weight, uh, recommended doses for kids. Now, the problem with kids is both mefloquine and, and, and chloroquine are incredibly bitter, Okay. So you've got to, for the small children, disguise that uh, by putting it in something to get them to take it, okay? But I'd much rather force my kid to take something once a week than once a day, okay? Some kids who have vivid dreams uh, that seem to disturb them, we actually split the dose, and we give them a half a dose uh, twice a week instead of the whole dose in one day, um, but you'll be surprised how many people do very well with mefloquine overseas, and I would hate for them to take this drug away, uh, even though it has a, a very bad reputation. Uh, Malarone is the most convenient option. It's taken daily. Very few side effects. It's got only a one-week tail. A tail refers to the length of time after your exposure that you uh, need to... Uh, uh, take this, okay? And doxycycline is cheap, but has a lot of nuisance side effects and has a four-week uh, tail, uh, which is uh, annoying. Uh, so let me emphasize that malaria is often a seasonal disease, like in India. Uh, there are outbreaks of malaria in March to May in Lowveld, Zimbabwe, which is the early dry season when the pools are drying up and the malaria mosquitoes are breeding. Um, during that time, I put uh, travelers to Zimbabwe on uh, malaria medication. Uh, but the long-term people don't need to take it year-round if they're living in those areas, in, the, in those fields. They, they then stop the anti-malarial. They have some, some malarone to take in the event that they need to treat malaria or another drug called coartum. And in the interest of time, I'm going to uh, basically uh, tell you that the mefloquine neuropsych concern has to be taken seriously. I do a, a good mental health screening. I ask about seizures. I tell people about the side effects, but we often do a trial if it's going to be the best long-term option for them. Uh, and at least three-quarters of the adverse reactions occur within the first three, three doses uh, most people just have vivid dreams. One reason not to use mefloquine is if they're going to be in Southeast Asia, there's evolving resistance that seems to be spreading, uh, and mefloquine is a poor choice 
for uh, Burma, Thailand, and uh, Vietnam. There are self-treatment options. And I encourage long-term expats to pick up anti an anti-malarial treatment regimen and have it with them when they come back to the States on furlough. Because there are a number of tragic stories of people who have come down with malaria in the U.S. And because U.S. physicians are seldom think of malaria or are not good at diagnosing it, uh, they, they may be tardy about instituting treatment. And it's good to have some treatment of your own just in case you can't get somebody to believe you that you have malaria, okay? And uh, so we use either Malarone, uh, four tablets daily for three days, uh, which costs about $60 for a self-treatment, or a drug called Coartem, which is, was just approved in the U.S. two years ago for uncomplicated malaria. And there's a three-day option for that, which I've included right here. Uh, and uh, this can be used for kids. It's a good standby emergency self-treatment. When people are off anti-malarials because the peak season for malaria is over in their particular destination, I usually have them keep something like Coartem or Malarone around so that if they do get, you know, headache, high fever, chills, and if they're more than 24 hours from medical care, they can, you know, self-treat for malaria, which is usually a safe process and can be life-saving if you're at a remote, uh, a remote site. You'll hear a lot about different drugs that are used overseas for prophylaxis, like malaprim, that are not approved in the U.S., and we urge you not to use the local remedy, like drinking uh, uh, artemisinin tea or papaya leaf tea, uh, which uh, may have some anti-malarial effects, but is not a proven anti-malarial uh, treatment. So be aware of your malaria risk. You know, avoid being bitten, take chemoprophylaxis, and seek diagnosis. And those are the ABCs of uh, malaria. And certainly, you may need to seek medical care uh, for up to a year uh, for malaria if you have a febrile illness. And uh, most cases, though, occur within three months of travel. Not to forget dengue fever. Dengue is something that causes high fever, usually within a week of travel, very short incubation, and a sunburn-like rash often after the fever breaks. And you're aware that there are four strains of dengue. If you're infected by a second strain after recovering from another, you may get a more severe manifestation of the disease called dengue hemorrhagic fever or dengue shock syndrome. And this can also result in life-threatening infections. And uh, dengue, of course, is widespread, especially in Central and South America right now and in South Asia. Uh, I think I see a lot more dengue fever than I do malaria in returning travelers. Okay, we're going to move on to a few travel vaccines. When you travel, you're in contact with an unvaccinated population. Uh, there are recommended, required, and routine uh, vaccinations. You may be going to a place that requires yellow fever, for instance. Even to get your visa for many West African countries, you have to pro show proof of having this vaccine. There's some great uh, reference books, the, the AAP's Red Book, the Pink Book uh, on vaccine-preventable diseases, and the 
The source for most of our vaccine recommendations, of course, is the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices of the CDC, and their website is, is right there. We use the CDC guidelines. First of all, I want to talk about some key vaccines for long-termers. One of them is hepatitis A. If you're going to get one vaccine before you travel, this is probably the one because it's spread through sewage. It's a fecal-oral spread. You're swimming off the coast of Mexico, and you get a little bit of water in your mouth while snorkeling, and that has some raw sewage that's you know, come in from a village nearby. And a month later, you become very, very ill, and people have to leave the field because they didn't get this vaccine. And, you know, there's, you recover, but it's a prolonged recuperation with weakness. Hepatitis B is spread through body fluid exposures. If you're doing medical work, of course, most of us have had the hepatitis B vaccination so that we don't uh, get sick from this. Typhoid is spread through fecal-oral uh, exposure. We have both oral and injectable vaccines. Oral is the way to go if you can do it because it lasts for five years and is uh, instead of just two years with the injectable uh, vaccine. There's a meningitis belt of northern Africa uh, where it's pretty critical to get meningitis vaccine. And yellow fever is a concern in tropical Africa and tropical South America. If you're going to be in Asia, think about Japanese encephalitis vaccine. Uh, the vaccine's brand name is now Ixiaro, and it is uh, uh, really pretty important for the long-term traveler. It's a rare disease, but a terrible disease if you get it with long-term sequelae. And if you're traveling with kids, by all means, think about getting them vaccinated against rabies if you're going to a rabies endemic area. Now, some of these vac some vaccines are live vaccines. Uh, yellow fever is a live attenuated virus, and it has caused deaths in immunocompromised people who have received it. And there's a warning in giving yellow fever vaccine if you're over 60 now, because as, as you, if you're over 60, you're more likely to have an adverse flu-like episode. Um, but I want to tell you that this vaccine can actually cause a form of yellow fever in immune-compromised individuals, and we uh, usually screen pretty carefully to make sure people are uh, candidates for it. I see travelers who want to go out on the mission field who are on TNF-alpha inhibitors for rheumatoid arthritis. And as you know, those are immunosuppressants, and... Um, increase the risk of all sorts of you know, tuberculosis and fungal disease. And you can't give yellow fever, measles, oral typhoid vaccine, if you're, uh, these live vaccines, if you're going to be uh, on drugs like that. So hepatitis A, please make sure that you get that. It's just a two-shot series. After you get the booster shot, six to 12 months after the first, you're good for life. It's safe in kids. And it is just a wonderful vaccine that has replaced the old immune globulin shot that we have to, had to get before this came out. Uh, there's hepatitis B vaccine. Uh, and by the way, we have accelerated regimens for this if you need uh, more rapid uh, protection before getting out on the field. This is for any sexual or body fluid exposure, and especially for longer-term travelers. I took this picture in, in Bangkok in the Padpong district, and I have, and this, this uh, is difficult to say, but 
you know, missionaries are people too, all right? And there are a number of single guys on the field who have fallen to temptation and gotten, gotten sick. And hepatitis B is a, a, a protection for them, especially in high-incidence areas like, like Asia. And we have Twinrex vaccine, which is an A-B combination. Uh, I'm just going to run through a, a few others because we're running out of time. There is no hepatitis C and hepatitis E vaccine commercially available, although E has been developed. And Japanese encephalitis is a well-known uh, uh, problem in Asia. It is sort of like West Nile, and a lot of people get uh, an illness that is flu-like but recover. But if you do get the encephalitis, it can be fatal in a third of people who contract it. And we recommend this for long-term travelers to Asia. It seems to be seasonal in the orange areas and year-round in the green areas, but this shows its range. And we recommend this for uh, people going for more than a month to Asia during the summer risk period in the, uh, in the orange area. Um, and uh, so consider this if you're, you're going to be living in Asia. Uh, the uh, cost is pretty high. It's about $500. It's two shots a month apart, uh, but it's a safe vaccine. And pediatric doses were approved in May of this year uh, down to the age of two months, so your family can be vaccinated as well. And there are also cheaper Japanese encephalitis vaccines available in Asia if you can't afford the U.S. prices. Uh, and we recommend uh, cell culture a vaccine, such as what they use in Japan or manufacture in Japan. So that's the range, again, of where Japanese encephalitis is a threat. And this is a mosquito-borne uh, virus. Meningitis vaccine is something that we really recommend, either Menactra or Menveo, quadrivalent conjugate vaccines uh, in the meningitis belt south of the Sahara. And rabies vaccines we recommend that every family with kids, because kids are attracted to animals, uh, consider pre-exposure rabies prophylaxis where they get uh, three doses at either 0, 7, and 21 days or maybe 28 days. Uh, and this gives you tremendous peace of mind. The problem with rabies vaccine is it costs over $900 now to give in the United States. And uh, so a lot of people are getting this overseas. Uh, we don't have the intradermal rabies vaccine here. Uh, even though, and you may want to know this, that one ml of the IM vaccine is equivalent to 10 doses of the intradermal vaccine. And some people have, and this is very much off-label, given them a tenth uh, of an ml intradermally, like a PPD uh, would be given not subcutaneously, but intradermally in the skin. Uh, and they get protective antibody titers, uh, and you can do basically three people for one, the cost of one uh, $280 vaccination. India and um, parts of South America, especially Central America, are very high risk. And uh, don't pet the dogs. Uh, and a common scenario is your, your kid is playing with the puppy that the neighbor 
has brought home and that puppy dies of rabies and half the kids in the village have been playing with it and have been nibbled on by that dog. And so you're looking at a major public health catastrophe. This shows us the range of yellow fever and Japanese encephalitis. I mentioned typhoid already. Both vaccines only provide about 70% protection. Um, and tetanus should be up to date. We recommend that you definitely get yellow fever vaccine if you're in a yellow fever vaccine area. It's one dose with boosters every 10 years. And let me tell you that the World Health Organization has determined that one vaccination seems to protect you for life. And all the adverse reactions we see with yellow fever occur with the first vaccination. So we have missionaries who are in their 80s who can get boosters of yellow fever vaccine safely uh, because they've had vaccination before. But I, I don't give people first-time yellow fever vaccine at that age. It's just uh, too risky. And this is given subcutaneously as a live vaccine. This is the yellow fever zone. And uh, you can see it's pretty much tropical Africa. It does not include southern or northern Africa. Where the long-term traveler sometimes gets tripped up is if you're traveling through a country that has yellow fever, like you're going via Nairobi to South Africa. They don't distinguish between the people who boarded the plane in Kenya and the people who never got off the plane. Everybody arriving is expected to show proof of yellow fever vaccine. And some people need exemption letters written or are given the vaccine for political reasons when they're transiting through. And it makes travel a lot easier to have a valid yellow fever certificate, which has to be renewed every 10 years. So this is a quick summary about vaccines in pregnancy. Avoid the live vaccines in pregnancy. And some key references that might be very useful for you. I'd like to take a few moments for questions. Um, and uh, we're pretty much out of time. Does anybody have anything that they want to ask? Yes. Well, the, uh, we, uh, the travel clinic keeps the, the little yellow card that is the certificate. And when we give you yellow fever vaccine, we stamp that with our special yellow fever stamp and sign it. And it's recognized now by governments for ten, to be valid for 10 years. We know that the vaccine is effective far longer than what uh, the regulations indicate yet. Uh, so you still have to get boosters as it stands now. They may change those regulations with the new information that yellow fever vaccine is good for longer. But as of now, you still have to get it boosted every 10 years like your tetanus shot. Uh, but and you carry that in your passport because when you arrive at these destinations, there's often somebody there checking to see that you've had that vaccine. Yes. So the question is, uh, he's heard that the rabies vaccine not only is expensive, but has to be 
given uh, frequently and is probably not worth the, the problem because it's of, it's of questionable effectiveness. I would disagree with that assessment. We have given people the uh, three doses. I was actually chased up onto an exam table by a rabid dog in Guatemala. Somebody was yelling, Pero loco, Pero loco. And uh, so I was cowering up on this table with three very fat Guatemalan ladies. And, uh, and uh, it wasn't my finest moment. But that's when I decided that I'm going to get the bite the bullet and pay for my rabies vaccination. And I can tell you that most people have very good antibody titers for even 10 years after getting that pre-exposure rabies uh, vaccine. And it does seem to be effective at uh, uh, reducing the risk. And we're especially concerned about kids who may have unreported exposures that you would never you know, prophylax against. Uh, so it can make a big difference. Well, thank you uh, very much. If any of you have other questions, please come up and, and talk to me. And I'll be glad to try to answer them.